Hello and welcome to Explain Me. My name's Patty Johnson. And I'm William Pauheta. Welcome to the show. Uh, today I thought we would start by just asking the question and answering, where have we been <laughs> these last few months? <laughs> I think it's a fair question. Yeah. Well, uh, I've been doing a lot of teaching and uh AFC launched Parade, which is uh, public art in Queens. So that's been keeping me pretty busy. Yeah, and I started teaching a little bit at SVA, probably not teaching quite as much as you have, but I was really just working in the studio on a show that opened in Copenhagen on the 17th. So it's probably a show not too many people are going to get to see, but I have extensive documentation on my website if anyone's interested. Excellent. So I think the last time we talked, we were actually at the hyperallergic offices talking about which shows we liked um, or were excited for this fall. So it seems like one thing uh, that would be a good thing to do is to review some of the shows we saw. What did we see? Yeah, well, I ultimately uh, have seen most of the shows that um, I wanted to talk about, including Soul of a Nation at the Brooklyn Museum. Um, Art and Conspiracy at Matt Breuer, along with the Jack Witten show, which was not on my radar for the uh, fall season. And I've, I've caught the first half of the Bruce Nauman retrospective at MoMA. Right. And I thought maybe we could start by uh, talking about the Warhol show at the Whitney, uh, which is up now. And that, I think, if we talked about it at all with Harag, was sort of dismissed as being uninteresting for a number of reasons, not the least of which being that we have all seen five million Warhols and uh, maybe are a little bit tired of them. Uh, I know that when I saw that show, I was surprised uh, by it, I guess in part because I went in thinking that I would really dislike it. And it's... Uh, comprehensive. The scholarship is impeccable. Um, Donna Dotson, who, uh, Donna DeSalvo, sorry, who curated the show, she uh, really managed to get together some, like, bring together some of these, like, pivotal pieces. It gives you, um, you know, the later work is massive, and uh, I mean, the scale alone is just sort of impressive, but you, you do get the sense that actually, um, the work wasn't really dying off in the 80s. He was having a good time um, and making some good stuff. And the whole show just sort of traces you through this history of his life and work, um, which is surprisingly more politically engaged than I really ever gave Warhol credit for. And his, in fact, his um, biographer... Um, Stephen Koch had said that he really wasn't a political person at all. He, um, when I asked him about uh, the subject of feminism as it related to uh, Warhol's work, he just said something like, oh, you know, I could imagine him shrugging and saying, oh, you know, that's nice. <laughs> <laughs> so, so actually, it was a great show, and I really recommend it. Yeah, I have not seen the show yet, um, so I can't really comment on <laughs> any of that. Um, but I think the show itself, though, has found itself drawn into a kind of web of controversy very recently. Right, which I, I think began with the uh, hyperallergic article that um, talked about one of the board members um, owning a company that uh, produced tear gas yeah, that was it, used at the border recently. Yeah, it's the Whitney chair, Warren B. Canders, and uh -huh. he owns a company called Safari Land, which manufactures the tear gas that was used on migrants at the U.S. border between uh, San Diego and Tijuana. Right. Uh, so I would say just sort of as a blanket statement, I think that's not good. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> You are not alone in that assessment. Apparently, the uh, Hyperallergic magazine article, which was published, uh, elicited a response from about 100 of the museum staff members, um, which you just read that letter. And it's a, it's a fairly powerful letter, um, which essentially calls for the resignation of Warren B. Canders from the Whitney uh, board, um, in part because the uh, actions 
um, that, you know, happened at the border have made, and the connection to the Whitney and its leadership has made many of the staff members feel physically sick. Um, they feel unsafe. Um, and it really sort of highlights the problem of what happens when one of your um, major financial sponsors, uh, and he was a major contributor to this Warhol show, when their values are really at odds with the institution and its staff members. You know, I have to say that that letter, um, you know, listeners, if you have a chance, take take a look at the hyperallergic article, read the letter. It's I found it incredibly moving. Um, you know, the they talk about how the staff is sort of personally um, affected by a number of these problems. And then there are several bullet points that talk about what they want done. Um, and I thought the bullet points were great, you know, and the letter itself is, it's moving without being, um, I don't know what the right word is. Like, it's still sensitive to the yeah. um, challenges that yes. are being faced. Yeah, I, you know, I think they point out very clearly that if um, Candors were to leave the Whitney, it would risk uh, a, a transformative level of funding that the museum receives. And it does sort of open up the question, where would that money come from? you know, to replace it if Candor's were to resign from the board. Right. And that's a, a, a much larger problem facing institutions. But it's it's part of this sort of question of, of how do we get museums and the leadership to be as sort of diverse um, as, as we would like the institutions themselves to be at the staff level, at the level of the artists they show. And, you know, the uh, Department of Cultural Affairs and their cultural report for the city has really advocated for diversifying institutions and museums. So that might also include sources of funding. Um, and the letter does point out that it sort of proposes a moral line for um, uh, potentially board members. You know, and I think it's it's a tough area, but they point out in the the staff letter that if it were a, a sort of uh, an accusation of sexual harassment um, would he'd be, you know, asked to leave the museum immediately, or for or a racially charged comment, would be he be asked to leave immediately. But right now, it's a little bit, I guess, there's a little bit of um, indirectness to the actions. He's not necessarily responsible for firing the tear gas himself. He is merely the manufacturer <laughs> of the tear gas, and the profits of which have underwritten, in part, the Warhol show, which uh, is is quite a good show. So we are into the the intersection of art, money, and politics, which I think most of the rest of the shows that we're going to talk about today certainly address. Yeah, I mean, I think we're definitely into the weeds on this. I think <laughs> the the thing about the letter that I really appreciated was that um, it sort of uh, sort of beyond talking about nuts and bolts, talked about some of the um, sort of. The, almost the more banal aspects of managing a museum that uh, in terms of communications that they felt were required. Like, you know, we want internal communications about these issues. And they cited Dana Schutz um, and that controversy as being sort of similar in the sense that the they didn't receive internal communication about what was being done and how they were going to address these issues. So what they're asking for is uh, for the leadership to do the kind of work that they are, as a museum, deciding is important. So the staff has decided is is has decided a direction that and a sort of set of criteria criteria that they're. Uh, pursuing and and a lot of that does include the sort of heavy work of diversity and it's really up to um, the leadership to uh, come to the table as well and that means really just even just the basic things of communicating about these issues that sounds familiar to something that we're going to discuss a little bit later in the episode but uh, it sounds like a, a democratic process uh, <laughs> when you have <laughs> yes. many of the staff members organizing to ask for direct communicate communication with their leadership um, which seems to have you know remained very quiet on this issue uh, as of yet. <laughs> 
That's definitely true. Um, so what about uh, Soul of a Nation? Because I know that that was a show that you saw recently and um, had a lot of uh, uh, thoughts and opinions on. Well, I, I, I have some. <laughs> I'll try to, <laughs> try to give you my, um, my, my hot take on this, or at least a somewhat quick take. But I, overall, I wasn't really sort of blown away by the show. I mean, in part because the, the show is a survey from 1963 to 1983. And right off the bat, I feel like the show would have benefited by some context of recent contemporary art by African-American artists. And, and I felt that that sort of... Um, it, it ended the show uh, on a sort of a, a down note for me. And I'll just try to explain that. Um, the, the last major room in the exhibition are, includes artists like Alma Thomas, and it's largely a room of formal and abstract work where uh, the, the sort of politically charged nature of much of the rest of the exhibition gives way to form and color and texture. And it's... Uh, a lovely room of work, but it doesn't have the same kind of political energy that charges the rest of the exhibition. Um, what I really responded to in the show is that it included different schools of artists working throughout the country that may have that seem to have been left out of the larger discussion of of art over the last 40 or 50 years, including the Afro-Cobra School out of Chicago. And it has a, an incredible room of these kind of what they call Kool-Aid paintings, which are incredibly vibrant, exploding with color portraits of people from the community. And uh, it's, it's something that I really haven't seen in art history lectures. Uh, usually when I hear about work coming out of uh, Chicago in the 60s and 70s, it's like the Harry Who, right. you know, a bunch of white guys, like Peter Saul or something, you know. Um, I... I found that to be a really like strong part of the exhibition. What was sort of uh, brought into the conversation with the sort of dominant narrative of, of um, Amer art in America from the '60s through the '80s. But uh, you know, and I think another artist that I really whose project I appreciated was uh, Lorraine O'Grady's public art project. What um, it's called Art Is dot 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 from uh -huh. 1983. And uh, basically she paraded through Harlem with gold frames and let people photograph themselves within these frames. And it's just sort of a joyous kind of like crazy experience that feels very relevant today in terms of social practice or public art. And another sort of very positive image of the community. And I think that's sort of maybe part of the pole of the show is uh, Black Panther covers with a kind of militant radical perspective and then, you know, sort of positive images of African-American experience that aren't just rooted in militancy. And right. that those two things kind of go back and forth. And perhaps, I guess, maybe that last room of, of more formal and abstract work kind of sit in between that, that space where artists maybe are free to work um, without like a sort of immediately foregrounded political message. Um, and so that's sort of where I'll, I'll, I'll kind of leave that off. And I, I would also note maybe it's, it's, it's always great to see some Barkley Hendricks uh, in a show, which <laughs> was also included in it. So I think one thing that um, I thought about after I saw that show, I was on Twitter, as I do. <laughs> Sometimes do. Um, I, I saw uh, uh, some tweets about a lecture that was being given in Baltimore um, with the artist John Waters. And he made a statement just sort of passing that, you know, he would never include Donald Trump in his work because he wouldn't want it to be dated. You know, that by including Trump, it would sort of freeze that work in a moment. And the work wouldn't be sort of timeless, and I, you know, it made me think, well, I was really glad there were so many artists working in the 60s through the 80s uh, in, in the Soul of a Nation show who were very more than happy to make their work look dated because it was so important in what the work was about. I think that's just such a silly concern because um, there are, I mean, one of the things that's actually come up for me um, while I've been teaching this, uh, this last semester is how much how quickly work gets dated no matter what you do. This is particularly true in net art, but you lose the context uh, in which it was made so easily that the work um, just doesn't make the same, it doesn't say the same things as it once did. And there's no, you have no control over that. 
Um, but it's also particularly silly that John Waters, of all people, would be <laughs> saying that. Now, I saw his show, uh, the John Waters show at the BMA, which is up now, the Baltimore Museum of Art, which was uh, curated by Kirsten Heilman. And she put together a show of his work that is um, sort of the mixed bag that John Waters is. Mm. Um, he is this incredibly creative, um, sort of almost like genius esthete when it comes to the abject. Like if there is something completely disgusting and revolting and, and morally abject in ways that you cannot imagine, John Waters has thought about it so and made sculptures. How, and, how could Trump not be an interesting figure for John Waters to explore, given what you I just d- said? <laughs> He's I don't even know. Corrupt, I get, gross, abject. <laughs> well, and I kept thinking about these two. When he said that, when you told me about that, he made these two sculptures. One is this like picture or sculpture of Michael Jackson as a baby mm. and, and he is crawling towards Charles Manson who is also in the form of a baby like these like weird cherubs but in <laughs> <laughs> like man cherubs in, in pop culture form and it is absolutely the most like unsettling thing you like I have ever seen and I could totally see a Donald Trump baby by John Waters absolutely and I mean you know Charles Manson and Michael Jackson are like icons from two different decades you know I mean maybe Manson's more 60s and 70s and Jackson's 80s but uh, you know whether or not we like it Trump is certainly going to be an icon of our late aughts you know Um, yeah I mean also like the other thing I keep thinking about is that uh, there's like Crooked Media did a uh, portrait contest um, where they asked people to submit uh, portraits of Donald Trump and they would put it on like mugs and stuff like this and then use the money that they raised from the swag to like uh, help support California art schools. Um, So they got a bunch of submissions, one of which was from Rosie O'Donnell. (laughs) Um, (laughs) But like... um, they included like Donald pictures of Donald Trump throwing up tweets. Uh, there was like a my favorite was this donut that was just thrown on the like on the asphalt and a piece of like uh, processed cheese mm. on top for his hair. <laughs> <laughs> it was like so minimal and perfect. But and I can't imagine how that's gonna end up on like a mug or a t shirt, but like I I would I I I would wear that t shirt. <laughs> anyway, um the the point is is that uh actually I don't even know what the point is, but we should get back to uh the John Waters show, um which uh I had thought like you know, it had all this like really gross kind of amazingly creative stuff. And then it also had like every bad dad art joke you could possibly imagine. Like John Waters, when he makes art about what he imagines the art world to be is the worst art. So this includes like a, you know, a, a, a big tower with a picture um, at the top that you can't see. And the point is that you can't see the picture. There's a painting that if you get too close to it, it, it'll spit on you like a clown or something. Um, There's a whole series of like oversized creams, uh, like facial creams and things like that, that he made. Uh, I think one is for hemorrhoids um, (laughs) that uh, were presented by him and uh, his gallery, which I believe is Andrea Rosen, which like I think the show that he put that stuff together was for like 2008. Clearly, none of it sold because it's all terrible. But it still made it into this stupid show. Yeah, it's going to be much more difficult to unload that work now that Andrea Rosen is closed. Yeah, <laughs> that's true. <laughs> I forgot about that. Well, you know, I think it's probably a good moment to. Um, also, just let me um, add this. The Soul of a Nation show, Art in the Age of Black Power, uh, was organized by the Tate Modern in collaboration with the Brooklyn Museum and Crystal Bridges Museum. 
um, of American art. And it was curated by Mark Godfrey, the senior curator of international art, and Zoe Whitley, Whitley, the curator of international art at the Tate Modern. And Ashley James, assistant curator of contemporary art, uh, was the curator from the Brooklyn Museum involved in the show. Um, but I think if, we, if we're talking about sort of a what sounds to be a kind of maybe not the greatest show in the world uh, by John Waters. Um, <laughs> there is another show that we both saw that we have sort of described as maybe the best show that we've seen. And we don't know how many years, maybe not even just this year, but the Jack Witten show of his sculptures at the Met Breuer. Right. Which also uh, came from the Baltimore Museum of Art and was co-organized with uh, by Katie Siegel and Kelly Baum. And I was really interested in sort of talking about the show, particularly after seeing the Soul of a Nation show, which I said, you know, the last room of the show, which really t- makes it takes a formal turn, was sort of let the political air out of the room for me in that show. Um, but then seeing the Jack Witten show, um, I just was blown away by that show in terms of where he's able to position his particular kind of formal approach to art making while retaining an incredibly strong sense of identity and uh, of a complicated identity that um, I, I think we can sort of talk about a little bit more as we discuss the show. I think this is... I, I absolutely agree. It's one of those shows that's so good that you almost don't know where to start and you get like a little excited (laughs) when you're about to explain why it's so amazing. You can't even get all the words out. Um, But it's formally, as you said, it's just really astounding. Like what, what Ken Price is to ceramics and color, meaning, you know, Ken Price is this absolute genius in that field and there's no one better and you feel this sense of like almost reverence when you see those works. That is what Jack Winton brings to texture and form. It's just incredible and you know it immediately. I mean, what's crazy is one of the first works you see, he's like what the show does is it sort of pairs works in the collection with um, some of the, that he specifically drew on um, to make it as inspiration for his work. So uh, it, it shows like a, a jug, um, I think made by slaves mm. in uh, North Carolina that he had looked at and then it showed his own set of jugs. Um, and both ju- jugs had kind of a, a face, set of faces on them. And you can see how he's been inspired, how the collection has informed what he does, what his own sort of vision is. And he describes this work as being relatively unsuccessful or sort of early and like, um, you know, he doesn't have the dexterity with uh, uh, you know, with a chisel or something mm. that he gets, but like he's a genius. Like it's amazing. <laughs> like the, the early work that is just like not as good as the good as as the, as his later work is better than most people Look, would ever yeah, ever I, achieve. I walked around that show in reverse chronological order at first, so I can't even tell you what was early and what was late work. It was all good. You oh, know, yeah, as far as absolutely. I was concerned. And the thing about being able to see the jugs made by slaves to traditional African artifacts in the space is incredible. And it's sort of what the Met can bring to a show like this. So I, I thought it was sort of brilliantly curated on that front. The other thing we should mention is the show called Odyssey. The show is titled Odyssey. And it's the first ex- museum exhibition of his sculptures. Right, which is just crazy. Like prior to this, they'd only been shown in Greece. So this is like this is the first time anybody is seeing this stuff, and it's just like off the fucking hook. Yeah, it's and, so and good. a lot of this work was sort of um, made while he summered in Crete, and then yes. eventually moved there and built a house and spent even more time, um, which reflected his kind of interest in both European histories of art making and uh, African uh, traditions of art making and sort of those spaces like Crete or in the Mediterranean where they overlap and kind of create this kind of hybridity, which um, I I was blown away. I hadn't seen his Black Monolith series. Of, uh-huh. I'll, I'll talk about those paintings. Um, they were incredible. I hadn't seen those collected before. Maybe I've seen one. Um, and I was blown away by the fact that they weren't just detritus or 
found materials, but all cast acrylic. Um, and the level of color and texture in those works was just stunning. And so going back and forth between those and the three-dimensional objects, which, again, were also incredible, but just a slightly, you know, a, a different language and approach to uh, working, I, I, you know, lapped that show two or three times. And um, also, I just want to point out that there is um, interview, there was an audio guide that includes an interview with Witten a couple of weeks before his death that are available on the, the Mets website. So I'm, I'm going to listen to those. I encourage other people. To yeah, their to audio well. guides actually, uh, in my experience, are are really good. I think they made one for Car- with Carrie James Marshall, who of course is this incredible speaker. So he's, you, you it, it was sort of a must listen to um, in that exhibition. This show, I, I think it's probably worth mentioning that the monoliths had been um, shown oh, yeah. before, yeah. Uh, but it was the sculptures that that haven't, and uh, it seems like. I don't know, um, but I would. <laughs> my understanding with the BMA show was that the sculptures and uh, the paintings were somewhat separate, which sort of led people to these comparisons between, mm-hmm. like, oh, I like the paintings better, not the sculptures, or I like the sculptures and not the paintings. Whereas these, it's, you see that there's this dialogue. Oh, absolutely. And, and what I what I loved was that, um, you know, there's the kind of political messages are just. He, you know, he goes to creep, but he's not separated or divorced from the political um, events that are happening in America. Mm-hmm. And you see that with, say, you know, his sculpture of um, Malcolm X, mm-hmm. uh, which is sort of this abstracted thing made out of nails and it's a blackened figure. Um, and then there's the uh, Invisible Man, the Ralph. Ellison uh, painting that's mm. a, sort of a mosaic that shows yeah. you can imagine him under a, a million lights. So all of these uh, political um, events and figures are are deeply embedded in the formalist language that he's using to make these works. Yeah, I would agree. Absolutely. I mean, the the sort of usual markers of black bodies or fashion or style um, are, you know, they're not foreground. They're not part of this work. You know, it's really the the way the sculptures for some of them, um, some of the pieces of found sort of driftwood or whatever the sort of wood structures are embedded with like screws and nails and, you know, these kind of markers of pain, um, or sort of Western industry in these very traditional materials. And so I felt like, uh, I mean, most of these sculptures could would, weren't trying to escape history. Um, they were very much about the kind of histories that he's sort of commenting on, whether it's the slave trade or, um, the experience of African-Americans in the South, um, during slavery or after, um, it, it just was profoundly powerful seeing these works. And then, you know, there were, there were other works that I remember one that was sort of like a a sort of totem he had made to himself that was sort of like almost a talisman for protection. And this one, you know, incorporated the kind of smooth polished marble or I'm not even quite sure all the materials that were used in the piece, but there, there, there are so many sort of hybrid constructions in the show that um, it's worth kind of just going back, even for me, to kind of like re-unpack all the layers of meaning in these works. I mean, the show, you can look at it first and just say it's gorgeous, and then then they start to unpack themselves. And there's so many layers to it that it's, it's, it's incredible. It's really amazing work. It's such a loss that he died. I mean, he was working almost right up until his death. Mm-hmm. Some of the, the most incredible pieces to my mind were the the later works that he did there's a piece called shark bait that's Mm. just this very very polished piece of wood that um where he has inserted uh white pieces of marble that are unpolished like like shark teeth or something and underneath there's this like sort of blue glow that he's that uh i think it's just a blue light um, that illuminates the whole thing. It's just, it's really incredible. And, you know, when I saw it, when I saw the show, I was euphoric. And I was euphoric because I thought, you know, 
beyond the sort of brilliance of this, I thought, you know what? Fucking finally. We've been talking about these issues of diversity and museums being able to get beyond this list of 200 some odd artists, like mostly white males. Cy Twombly. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Just dominating the museum circuit. Um, And here is a contemporary program that is digging into their collection, which is the the biggest, the most diverse collection in in the world of artifacts, and using that to update their contemporary program to to produce programming that is diverse. Yeah, and to to you know elevate Witten, who you know if we're just seeing his sculptures in a museum for the first time, to really elevate his entire practice and put the sculptures on the same sort of playing field as his monolith series, which may be better known, but I can't imagine seeing those two separated out. I am so glad they were hung together. Oh yeah. So, and, and and you know that this is a problem when somebody of this skill and talent, this is the first time they're being shown. Like, you know, there are, there are huge diversity issues if that's what's happening, you know, beyond the sort of numbers you see the show and you're just like, Oh my God. Which is why when the Met announced that they were closing their program, <laughs> I erupted in rage. Yeah. I am so angry about this. Like, this is such a tragedy. And this comes on the heels of them, you know, making admission um, mandatory for people coming from outside of, like, the tri-state area, which seems insane because we know, we've discussed this, they have the money this seems like an insane, just um, cost-cutting measure they don't have to make. They have a $3 billion endowment. Spend some of it, just a little bit. You don't even have to spend a lot, but spend some of that. It's really a loss, you know, considering a show of this sort of quality and what it's doing and what it's adding to the kind of art historical canon. You know, I don't need to see another show of Cy Twombly. I know there's a new... uh, biography about him called chalk or something but uh this uh, you know i feel like witten um for me right now is a, a better artist and needs to be seen more oh absolutely um so just upstairs uh or was it downstairs now i don't remember what floor it is it on. is upstairs uh is the art and conspiracy show right so that was curated by doug uh eckland and ian altavir um And that show seems pretty timely, yes? It does seem timely, but I will say part of the reason why I was just so blown away by the Witten show is because I spent a lot of time with the Art and Conspiracy show. Um, It it did not kind of live up to my expectations. Um, Yeah, mine neither. Yeah, you know, uh, so so if you do go (laughs) to the Met Breuer, um, maybe start with the Art and Conspiracy show because you you are guaranteed to have an amazing experience with the Jack Witten show. And if you see the Witten show, you might not even stay at the Art and Conspiracy show. And and there are a lot of artists I truly respect and uh, have taken a lot of inspiration from in the Art and Conspiracy show. But it just kind of, um, I think it barely scratches the surface of the potential for what a, a show could be organized around the, you know, the, the curatorial idea. It, yeah, oh, absolutely. I mean, that... That was a that show is a bummer, I think. Like so, it, it was divided into two sections. Mm-hmm. Right? So the first section was like all the research-based uh, stuff. So art that kind of resembles investigative journalism. Yeah, and trying to resist any you know like fake news or artistic license, you know, because we're artists, not necessarily journalists. But it 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 is that sort of fact-based, um, research-based part of the show. Right. So we have the Mark Lombardi's like right at the beginning. Yep. And those, you know, I think maybe for those of us steeped in the world, we may have seen them um, more than once, but I think they're always worth looking at. Yeah. I the, think they're, the the wall text had a just nice little factoid for any viewer coming to see them, maybe for the first time explaining his system for showing the flow of capital or influence or where transactions actually occurred. And it's like the most useful wall text I've ever seen in a museum. It's just like, here's how you can decode one of these. <laughs> <laughs> That's useful. Cause basically, 
basically, just so people know, they're basically like flowcharts, flow right? Mm -hmm. So they have little circles with like names of board members and banks, uh, institutions, banks and, yeah, public figures, uh, elected officials. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I think one of the drawings was about Bill Clinton's relationship with a certain investment bank uh, during the Whitewater scandal and all of that, uh, which. That's right. Yeah, that was. Yeah, and and the the other um, sort of notable works. I don't know if you have any others from that first section where the Hans Hacke real estate pieces that he had made for his Guggenheim retrospective that created a lot of controversy. And I'm not 100 percent sure if these pieces were not allowed to be included in the exhibition because they detailed the real estate holdings of two of the Guggenheim board members, mapped out, and then uh, all of it sort of tallied up to what. You know, I guess looking back on it now, seeing these two uh, board members had real estate holdings of something like $39 million, which... Yeah, is for like, today is yeah. like a drop in the bucket. Yeah. But. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I mean, I had Jenny Holzer on my list of mm -hmm. uh, works that I thought were good. I mean, this is... Uh, a Jenny Holzer, like all, like any sort of Jenny Holzer that that people have probably seen, it's an LED light that's uh, series that's got its own room, mm -hmm. um, and I can't, rem I, to be honest, I don't even remember the uh, sort of uh, things it was detailing at this I, point. It, to me, in my foggy memory of it, it felt like I was looking at a stock ticker. It wasn't just you know straightforward text. Oh yeah, the stuff I saw definitely had text on it that you were reading it looked like a news crawler yeah so um so you uh, there are times then that you can read it and it uh, there's actual things uh, that are being outlined and other times it's numbers but um but yeah so that's the first half of the exhibition there's some alberto jars mm -hmm. trevor pagland's oh you know the alberto jar i i took a note as i was walking through the show and i was just wondering how big of an influence alberto uh, Al, alberto jar yeah um how big of an influence or is he it was alfredo? maybe it's alfredo jar yeah um how big of an influence he was on uh, the artist don vo Oh, you know, just like it's the picture and the text and that kind of like project of finding out all things Kissinger. Yes. You know, I felt like I was like, oh, my God, now I really have a, a, a bit of a bit of more understanding of like the model for Donvo's work. You know, because I saw the Guggenheim retrospective and um, there are works that are formatted almost exactly the same of, you know, uh, well, anyway. It just uh, was something that popped up in my mind, creating connections between things, <laughs> a show about art and conspiracy. Right. And so the second section is more sort of where we get into uh, the actual conspiracy theorists. Or, yeah, and the, the psychological, like looks like. emotional headspace where you may have left the land of facts and are starting to entertain other kinds of connections that might be impossible to imp impossible to prove which is the definition of conspiracy right like right so we have uh so we have artists like jim shaw um mike, mike kelly, kelly raymond pettibone like a lot of these sort of um pretty much all the artists you would think you'd see for this sort of thing in not a lot of uh surprises and people who have um you know i think uh, in our preparation for this show, you had said these were all men who had recently had solo shows. So yeah, it, it felt seemed... a little uh, unsurprising. Um, it almost unnecessary, considering the um, just for example the giant Jim Shaw retrospective, which had an entire floor of his Mormon memorabilia, right? Which definitely got into the kind of psychological space of. Um, uh, well, <laughs> I mean, I, I just think that was a much fuller picture of like what Jim Shaw does. Oh, yeah. They had like one tiny vitrine for this. And that's like it, Jim Shaw plus his like installation of dwarves and kryptonite, which I frankly thought like, like it, it's OK, but like it took up a lot of real estate. And like I I think like I could have used about like eight more vitrines of the truly crazy crap he's. Yes, collected. I completely agree. And I, um, I I would say that the show sort of like the dividing line between the land of fact and the land of sort of almost fantasy 
is a, a small room with three Jeremy Blake videos. And it's been a long time since I've seen a Jeremy Blake work. But walking up to it and remembering that this is an artist who committed suicide after finding his wife, um, her dead body in their home after she had committed suicide. Uh, I, I, it sort of brought back a lot of memories about the artist's end and his own kind of like collapsing sense of reality. Um, and the videos, I, I, I spent the most time with those of any work in the show. I think I sat through about one and a half, but it's probably a combined like 40 minutes or maybe an hour of video. And they really did get me into that kind of hallucinatory kind of fugue state of just paranoia. And, um, I, they were beautiful, you know, and they, they kind of brought me to that place that I think I expected maybe to get a little more of out of the second half of the show. And I didn't, I, you know, the dwarves and the crystal, you know, I'm like, ah, it's a Mike Kelly and Jim Shaw collaboration. Did they not make this together? And the, the Pettibon drawings, like if you want conspiracy Pettibon right now, just read his Twitter. Follow his Twitter. Yeah, follow yeah. his Twitter. It's bananas. You know, it's so much more interesting <laughs> well, in that case than maybe the drawings. And this is, the, I think, the big thing that they left uh, just uh, sitting on the table. It's the elephant in the room. And the same thing could be said, you know, with Jeremy Blake, his his wife who committed mm-hmm. suicide, Teresa Duncan, has a blog that was nowhere in the show that details all these crazy conspiracy theories. She was a crystal meth addict mm-hmm. um, and like was convinced that the police were hunting her and her husband down. And like the last year, two years of her blog are, is just pure conspiracy um, and crazy and kind of interesting as a result. So like, you know, where is uh, the web vernacular mm-hmm. where the, this stuff is really playing out. Oh yeah. There's no Reddit conspiracies. I mean, the show pizza gate. Yeah. It ending a show with Jim Shaw and Mike Kelly and Raymond Padabon. It just, yeah, it roots it in time. It sort of ends it with like a late seventies, early eighties feel and almost entirely ignores the presence of the internet. Um, and it, now that you're pointing it out, it really feels like the, a, a totally incomplete show. Kind of in a way that I feel like the Soul of a Nation show would have benefited greatly just by bringing some contemporary art from African-American artists working now, you know, uh, 30 or 40 years out, you know. Yeah, I mean, I I really think they needed a partner for this show. Like, um, and I I guess the, uh, the touchstone I had had for... Um, a show that I thought really benefited from uh, having a partner was this like Utopia show. It was called Utopia um, that the uh, New York Public Library launched in 2000. So this is some time ago, but this was a truly extraordinary show. They brought in original documents, the, you know, uh, the Declaration of Independence, uh, the, the um, they had original Marx documents. They collaborated with um, France. Um, to bring all this stuff in. So it, it traveled from, I believe, the uh, Central Library there um, and uh, appeared in the Gottesman Gallery um, in the in the main branch of the New York Public Library. Like, you know, imagine if they, if, if the Met had collaborated with, say, the Museum of Moving Image mm-hmm. so that they could have, um, you know, a web investigation investigation and exhibition as well so that there's something that's just a little bit more prominent so that they could give and so they had more real estate so they could give somebody like jim shaw the floor he needs like if a conspiracy like if this is a conspiracy theory show and we know where conspiracies are right now like this thing should just take over the entire building (laughs) like yeah, I, it, it would be a show that could benefit from, you know, the whole Met Breuer or, yeah, working with another partner. You had mentioned the New York Public Library earlier, yes. giving access to archives. And I think introducing some art, younger artists that are working with um, communities that are involved in kind of conspiracy discussions or even just addressing the alt-right or the rise of fake news would have brought the show much further along. And, I, you know... I'm comparing it in my head. I was in Copenhagen in Denmark for my show, and we uh, went up to the Louisiana Museum, which is just like 20 minutes north of uh, Copenhagen. And there was a show at the museum called The Moon, and it was a giant show about the moon, right? About as far as art conspiracies, from art and conspiracies you can get. 
But the show is an amazing kind of historical overview of artistic engagement with the moon, with things from pop culture, film history, music history, um, all the way up to a brilliant Hito style video installation, a multi-channel thing about drones that happens to be at like a lunar observatory. So the connections are not, I mean, they're kind of far-fetched, but it was a really well put together show in a way that I felt like the art and conspiracy show at Met Breuer was very much art that might be a little bit about conspiracy, but not so much. Um, yeah. Yeah. Have you seen uh, or listened to that podcast slow burn by uh, Leon Nafok? No. So Leon Nafok used to be a reporter, an art reporter for the New York observer. And now he's running this podcast slow burn for, um, Slate and Slow Burn has done the Monica Lewinsky uh, trials, and they all, uh, he also did um, the uh, podcast series on Watergate. Now, when he did the podcast series on Watergate, um, he did a section on conspiracy theorists, and one of the things that I thought was the sort of most revealing. Uh, sort of nuggets of this particular podcast was he talked about how Watergate, because it was an actual conspiracy, (laughs) gave rise to conspiracy theorists. That's when they sort of came out in full bloom because it sort of legitimized, like the, the actual conspiracies legitimized conspiracy theorists. You yeah, could because, imagine them better. Yeah, I mean, the the uncovering an actual conspiracy and revealing it, um, the, the conspiracy theorist lives in a world where if you can't disprove it or prove that it's happened, they can just keep it going. You know, it's like the, it, there's a kind of psychology that, you know, you could say, no, look, this didn't happen. It's like, well, but it's a conspiracy that's designed to, you know, not be found. And so it can kind of ever spiral further and further away from kind of reality. Like... I'm just thinking my most of my experience of this is around kind of 9-11 truthers and right. conspiracy theorists where they're like they're still quite certain that it was a false flag operation and done by the U.S. government, you know, to advance a foreign agenda. Um, and so I, I guess, yes, like we I think we live in a time where conspiracy theory is alive and well. And we may be in the presence of a sort of vast conspiracy right now with Donald Trump and Maybe a right. really poorly executed one. Um, <laughs> but, but yeah, and yet, like, still going, yeah. right? Like, like once these things take root, like, it seems like you can be a complete and utter moron who is probably uh, legally crazy um, and still, you know, create, like, almost unfathomable damage. Mm-hmm. So... Um, but you know, this, the system has to be broken enough for somebody to get in that, that place in the, in the first place. And, you know, we see that, uh, particularly on the Republican side, but, you know, we also see all of these places in which the political system is broken, um, on the democratic end of things too. And I think this was sort of the last thing we wanted to talk about. Yeah, well, I mean, that would probably bring us to the uh, announcement that Amazon is going to locate one of two new headquarters in Long Island City. And, you know, I think it's probably, at least for me, um, to separate out conspiracy and conspiracy theory from collusion and just general corruption right. that, that can kind of exist in plain sight. And because <laughs> yes. I, my, my last comment on conspiracy theory is it, it also becomes a way to deny reality. Like if you are uncomfortable with how things are, or you don't want to assign blame to something that's right in front of you, you can develop an elaborate system where somebody else is to blame for the problems where you can scapegoat others. And, you know, we get into terrible situations yeah, and I mean, I, I actually, I do want to bring this back to um, the Whitney for just a minute mm-hmm. because um, in their statement, um, you know, I, th- I think there's sort of two things, right? Like they're, uh, 
there is what we're just talking about, like separating out the, the conspiracy theories and like not wanting to deal with things. And mm. so what happens is you, you don't want to deal with something. So you don't deal with it by coming up with an alternate reality, which mm-hmm. is crazier. Or you um, are this sort of middle of the road person that does nothing. <laughs> and they had this quote uh, from Martin Luther King Jr. who said, I have almost reached the regrettable conclusion that the Negro's great stumbling block in the stride towards freedom is not the white citizens counselor or the Ku Klux Klan, but the moderate white who is more devoted to order than justice, who prefers a negative peace, which is the absence of tension, to a positive peace, which is the presence of justice. Well, that was also my Twitter feed yesterday on World AIDS Day and the death of President H.W. Bush. Um, So many people sort of thanking him for his grace and candor and being the opposite of Trump. And at the same time, other people pointing out his role in destabilizing Latin America and being involved in the Iran-Contra scandal. I mean, just, you know, all these and his his own terrible response to the AIDS crisis. I mean, uh, it, it was very clear who is sort of in that sort of middle centrist area that uh, just wants the, the cultural norms of respecting the dead and honoring public service and all of that outweighed what his actual policies were and how much harm he caused. I mean, look, like I, I, in some ways I really, I am that person. Like I want to just be like, okay, you know, let's respect the dead and, and all the rest. Um, but, uh, um, I don't, I was thinking about this the other day because I was listening to a podcast in which a so-called moderate Republican was put, um, put on, this was a David Axelrod was interviewing some millennial who is a Republican. And I thought, you know, this person is a moderate quote unquote. And I don't think I've heard a single Republican on his show who I didn't think sounded like a total asshole. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Um, so like, I think there's gotta be a way of being respectful, but also pointing out that like the Republicans haven't done anything good since Nixon. (laughs) That's, I would agree with that. Uh, (laughs) you know, and I think somebody, maybe it was Dred Scott on Twitter was like, if you don't have anything good to say about the dead, don't say anything. And he was like, he's dead. And that was the end of the statement, you know? So uh, unfortunately, that was not the rest the case with the rest of Twitter. Right. <laughs> Just an explosion of sadness and anger and pain. But we digress. Yes. Amazon. <laughs> so, speaking of anti-democratic um, developments yeah. in New York State. Um. Yeah, so this is bad news. Uh, basically, Amazon uh, has announced that it has deal with the city, um, and, uh, and the state. Yeah, and the state. Um, so it will be coming to uh, Long Island City. Um, they, uh, De Blasio, Bill De Blasio, the city's mayor, and Andrew Cuomo, the state uh, governor, have somehow managed to put a deal together. They they haven't been able to work on literally any other thing Uh, but for some reason this particular uh set of uh um corporate giveaways has been appealing enough to them that they uh found a way to collaborate um so uh this is something that we are i think you and i are both just unilaterally opposed to yes um, do you want to sort of spell out some of the details of this deal? Um, yeah, I, I, you know, I think a lot of our listeners will probably have read about the deal. In essence, New York State and the city are giving a combined subsidy of about $3 billion to Amazon um, uh, in exchange for... Here's, here's what um, I 
sourced some information from uh, a fairly excellent article on Curbed. And the, the, the general argument is that, you know, from the state and the city's perspective, that Amazon will generate $27.5 billion in state and city revenue over 25 years, a 9 to 1 ratio of revenue to subsidies. Uh, uh, the state claims and Amazon claims they will create 25,000 de- jobs over the next decade and upwards as high as 40,000. Uh, and these jobs will have an average salary of 150,000. Um, and that, you know, the construction jobs and direct and indirect jobs will be somewhere in the neighborhood of like, you know, 111,000. Um, so, hey, this sounds great. It sounds like the city's going to get rich off this. Yeah, I mean, this is their <laughs> basic argument. And to to attract all of this economic development, the city uh, is willing to, you know, basically subsidize each of those jobs by about $50,000. And they're willing to, um, you know, essentially just, you know, spend $3 billion of taxpayer money on a company that is worth a trillion dollars. Um, Jeff Bezos is worth $139 billion himself, and the company reported $3 billion in profits last year. Um, part of what, why I think people hate this deal is in part because, one, um, it was part of Amazon's kind of, you know, sort of deviously brilliant thing to just, you know, make this a competition between cities and get them to just you know, give the best possible deal they could get to get all these, you know, wonderful things I just outlined um, and and let the city kind of like do this in ways that didn't necessarily involve things like our city council, didn't involve a lot of democratic processes. This was basically cities putting together the deals uh, through administrations. And once Amazon announced that they were going to be coming to Long Island City, uh, the the one of the ways the city and the state could promise this is because they um, are bypassing New York City City Council. And uh, we have a process called like ULURP. And um, the city and the state can just override our local regulations through this process, like by going around this process. And they do that basically, traditionally anyway, for large public infrastructure projects, right? Like say Penn Station or something like that. The state runs that um, and uh, they're considered a public good. Yes. I mean, and part of this is the state does own some of the land on which this Amazon headquarters will be built, but it's also city owned land. And literally one of the few things where the city has any agency in this, because so many of our housing and rent laws are controlled at the state level, is this, um, you know, the, the, the ability of the city council to regulate land use. And so far, the city and the state have said, we're just going to go around that process. Um, and there's one other sort of step that the uh, the the state is supposed to take, which is to bring this in front of the public authorities control board for a vote. And it's a five member group. Four of them were appointed by Cuomo. So I would say it's pretty stacked in his favor that they would vote for it. But even so, uh, in this one of these, uh, you know, maybe in the curbed article, Cuomo is quoted as saying he doesn't even have to do that. He could go and bypass that control board if he if he if absolutely necessary to get this. Because I feel like there's a lot of that kind of bullshit in this, like non-binding bullshit in this uh, oh, agreement. Yeah. Well, like th- this is also all based on a memorandum of understanding, an MOU, and they're non-binding. So essentially, anything that Amazon agrees to do is non-binding. It's not legally enforceable. It is going to be sort of up to their goodwill. Now, the city, if Amazon backed out of some of these things, could maybe stop giving their Excelsior tax credits or pull some of the (laughs) subsidies. But again, these things are sort of dependent on the um, goodwill of Amazon in in this, what they will be doing. Um, Around all of this is, is the fact that if you go to Long Island City right now, it looks like, um, you know, they've, they've built seven or eight high rise luxury condo towers that were happening ahead of this. And to entertain, uh, you know, the conspiracy angle for just a brief second, you know, sort of in the back of my mind, I've been thinking about this, like, why was there this huge rush of development in Long Island City to build 
really, you know, high end luxury housing, um, when it initially wasn't even really zoned for residential, it was commercial. They were going to be hotels for a little while, but once the rezoning happened now, now you have an area that is being like aggressively gentrified that looks a little bit like they were just building Amazon dormitories, but I, you know, I can't imagine that there's enough time, the timeline is too long to kind of connect this directly to Amazon, but it is very convenient that they're moving their headquarters to an area that now has um, a a, a huge amount of luxury development already happening in an area where people, uh, activists have been fighting for the last few years to make sure that there's public park space, um, schools, uh, that there will be affordable housing being built, which this deal effectively killed, um, you know, like 1,500 units of affordable housing, if not more. Well, you know, a note on that, you know, I think one of the reasons that was deemed so disposable is that that program is basically a non-program to begin with. It's not having any impact. So who cares if they get rid of these 15,000, which... Uh, units, which, uh, it, wait, is it 15,000 or 1,500? I think it was just 1,500. 1,500. I... So 1,500 units, which are like a drop in the bucket compared, they're not addressing the problem of a lack of affordable affordable housing. Yes. It's a PR effort. So if they get rid of this like one little bit, like who cares? It wasn't making an impact to begin with. Well, exactly. I mean, you know, beyond the kind of like anti-democratic nature of how this deal was done and how it bypasses democratic systems for public debate um, around land use, um, the $3 billion in subsidies if, if the city and the state have that money, we're sort of asking the question, where has that been for affordable housing? Where is that money for uh, infrastructure repairs? I mean, I mean, you commute on the seven train. People loathe that thing. I mean, we're, we're dealing with a crumbling subway system that doesn't work properly. And suddenly we have all this money that we can give to a company that does not need it at all. Doesn't need it and has no responsibility to give to to give any of that uh, that money that they would be paying in taxes to a public infrastructure program. So the public infrastructure program that they uh, are giving into, which I believe is called Pilot, yes, uh, they are not required to uh, give any of that money. Um, until 11 years into that deal. Yeah, it's spread out over four decades, 40 years. And, you know, <laughs> we're We talk- don't need the yeah. money, like, after they're here. There are like, going to be a lot of people who are need dead the infrastructure. before that money's, yeah. Yeah, spent. And, and, you know, if we loop back to the city and state's logic is that it's going to generate this $27.5 billion over 25 years, if we ask ourselves, how is the city and state spending the money they currently take from us in revenue? They're not using it for affordable housing. They're not using it to reduce the rent burden on small businesses. They're not reducing the um, student loan debt burden on people. So I don't have a lot of good faith that that $27.5 billion in state and city revenue are really going to be going to the schools that need it the most. Um, we've had these kind of failed... Uh, uh, de Blasio initiatives to kind of help uh, underperforming schools. And basically it didn't work. So they're just shutting the program down. And that, I don't think we're going to hear any more of that. Yeah. I mean, I think the fact that this exists at all um, is indicative of all the things that the sort of, that the government should be doing and isn't. So for example, Amazon is this trillion dollar company. It is obviously... Um, a monopoly. Yeah. Um, it doesn't sort of fit the 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 way that we have redefined um, our antitrust laws. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, which apparently happened in the 1970s when um, the uh, movement. Let's see. I I read an article on this. It's a the movement when regulation was redefined to focus on consumer welfare, which is to say price. Mm-hmm. So Amazon, uh, because they're meeting consumer needs uh, and giving them cut rate deals is not subject to uh, to federal intervention when it should be because yeah. um, they're basically like what the railroads used to be. They're this huge juggernaut um, where people are sort of forced to use 
their biggest competition. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, it's not lost on me, the, the kind of ridiculous ironies of all of this. Um, uh, a f- about a month or so ago, I attended a five-hour city council hearing on the Small Business Job Survival Act which is a bit of rent negotiation tools that are aimed at helping small businesses and commercial rent holders, including artists, you know, negotiate in better faith and on more fair, equal footing with their landlords. But during the course of that five hour hearing about a very tiny, small bill, um, it it, it was brought up again and again that maybe the problem uh, isn't high rents and that we should just be looking at the impact of online retailing on small businesses in New York City. And here we are inviting the largest online retailer in the United States to headquarter uh, in New York City and subsidizing that, which just seems kind of insane to me. This It's so frustrating because I think, you know, we live in a time where there are really big problems to solve, but also tools that make solving, that should make solving some of these problems the hard work of solving some of these problems kind of fun, like the intellectual work that goes into coming, coming up with those solutions. And basically we're wasting our time dealing with corruption and bullshit and like these sort of, uh, attempts, um, and actions on the part of Democrats and Republicans to do a run around the public. Mm hmm. As if we don't know what's going on. Yeah. Yes. (laughs) And I mean, this is just going to have the Amazon headquarters structurally is going to have a huge negative impact on communities of color, low income New Yorkers. It's inevitably going to lead to more displacement in Long Island City. Those $150,000 a year jobs are not going to be going to you know, people living in the community, they're going to, it's, it's, they, they picked Long Island City because they want to attract the best and the brightest employees from around the country and the world who want to live in New York City for a while and then probably move out to the suburbs to have their kids, whatever, you know, this, this doesn't seem to be something that is going to benefit New Yorkers right now. And that it's going to happen in so many different ways. But like right now, the property values in and around Long Island City, there's already developers snatching up whatever they can, because now they know that it's going to be worth so much more money. And uh, if we thought it was bad in Long Island City right now in the surrounding communities, it's only going to get worse. Yeah, I. uh, Yeah, I don't even know if I have anything to say (laughs) (laughs) with regards to that. Um, I, I can say that uh we are opposed to this um mm-hmm. we have uh you and i are both part of the artist studio affordability project um which has produced a uh, petition on moveon.org mm-hmm. that artists can sign and basically it outlines um why we think uh amazon is a bad idea why we think you should Everybody should say no to this. And uh, it asks artists to take a pledge and, I would say, and, and yeah. creative workers, creative workers, cultural workers yeah, to take a pledge to reject any, any of these like uh, crumbs, so-called outreach from Amazon. Should, should I just read this pledge? Yes, please. <laughs> As working art makers and art organizations in NYC, we pledge not to take any crumbs from Amazon. We reject any outreach from Amazon, including residencies, studio or performance space, or exhibitions. We don't want to help Art Wash or Culture Wash a dirty deal by Amazon with any subprime offers to artists. And we won't give the city and state any cover by participating in any of their blatantly undemocratic closed-door deals. What's bad for the community of LIC, the working poor, and the working class is also bad for artists. So if you want to sign this petition, it'll be on moveon.org. You can also find it on Art F City and the Artist Studio Affordability Project. And I think with that, we should uh, close off the podcast. Until next time. Until next time.